Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it is time for Tuesday Home Time. We've had a little bit of a, a hiccup there, but everything's under control now. And it's coming up to four o'clock. But first, I have a sad announcement. Elizabeth Curtis passed away on the 9th of January in Mowi, aged 86. Elizabeth was a long-time volunteer at 3CR and worked as the station's listener sponsor coordinator, reception volunteer and programmer, presenting the Calling All Women, one of the very early programs on 3CR grid, on air until Elizabeth's retirement in 2011. Elizabeth was a member of the Union of Australian Women, the Australian USSR Friendship Society and the Australian-Bulgarian Friendship Society, all programs which made a lasting contribution to the politics of these organisations and the politics and programming at 3CR. Through her work with the Australian USSR Friendship Society, Elizabeth was responsible for financial contributions to the station, funds that will go towards replacing our roof. Elizabeth's funeral will be held on Thursday the 18th of January at the Gippsland Memorial Park Chapel, to Rogan Cemetery at 1.30. Family have asked that in lieu of flowers, donations to the Australian Conservation Foundation would be appreciated. And her favourite folk singer was Judy Small. There's a woman in Great Britain, Bridget Evans is her name, and she's out on Greenham Common and things will never be the same. And this is not just Bridget's fight, there's women by the score, by the hundred, by the thousand, and there'll be ten thousand more. And they're fighting for their families, they're fighting for their friends, and they won't stop, no, they won't stop, till this nuclear madness ends, till this nuclear madness ends. And Bridget's left her husband and her kids at home in Wales And she hears what people say of her That she's gone off the rails And she says that men have left their wives And marched off to their wars And how can her fight for humankind Be any less a cause And she's fighting for her family She's fighting for her friends And she won't stop, no, she won't stop Till this nuclear madness ends, till this nuclear madness ends. And Bridget's been to prison, for they say she breached the peace. When she sat inside a sentry box and sang to the police. And her song is growing louder as it echoes off the sun. That Bridget won't leave Greenham till the battle has been won. And she's fighting for her family, she's fighting for her friends. And she won't stop, no, she won't stop, till this nuclear madness ends, till this nuclear madness ends. There's a woman in Great Britain, Bridget Evans is her name. And she's out on green, I'm coming, and things will never be the same. 
speaking now with trade union and human rights activist Peter Murphy in Sydney. Peter, reading an article in The Age yesterday by Lindsay Murdoch titled East Timor's Minority Government Could Fall Within Days. Can you give us the background to this possibility? Well, the, the details are that there was an election for the parliament in July last year, July 22, and the uh, outcome was that the Fredland Party got the most votes by a narrow margin from the CNRT party, and uh, the CNRT was led by Shanana Guzmao, and uh, although uh, Mr Guzmao was quite uh, set back by this, this uh, result, his party and he and actually all the parties in the new parliament agreed to support a government formed by Fretland. There was a lot of uh, shuffling of the deck happened between the parties. So the initial three parties which would form the government, two of them dropped out and, um, and, and another one came in to replace them. And, and the result was quite late in the year, I think in November, that the government was formed and uh, it had a minority in the parliament supporting it uh, in a formal sense of uh, 30 votes and there were 35 votes with the range of uh, parties not participating formally in the government with CNRT being the main one and then this is quite a formal process you know whereby the president of the country uh, who is a Fretland person uh, at this point has meetings with all the party leaders and they give undertakings or they, they say what their stand will be. So they all gave these uh, formal undertakings to support this uh, minority government, but, but it never got anything done. You know, the, the only thing that happened positively in the parliament was the election of the president of the parliament from among the Fretland MPs. And uh, after that happened, there was a clear change of mood or attitude in the, in the opposition and they proceeded to vote down the proposed program of the new government and then they voted down the proposed budget for the next year. In each case they didn't give any real reasons They're in the debate. They simply said they didn't want to support. So it was a, a sort of a crudely political dynamic that took over in uh, late November and December and uh, yeah, it became obvious that something like what we're facing today would, would happen. There's been more in intricate things going on about the President of the Parliament, like our Speaker of the House. So there was some effort by the opposition to remove the President, and the President's taken action in the Court of Appeal about this, and, and the Court is due to give its decision in about two weeks' time, apparently. But I think time is running out. When I read Lindsay Murdoch's uh, report yesterday, I was moved to call people in Timor to check, you know, what they thought was uh, underway. And uh, I think uh, the, the first point is that the Parliament won't be meeting at all this week, um, but it would meet next week. One of the uh, items on the agenda is a vote of no confidence in the government. Clearly, the 35 votes would, would carry that. But another process is also underway because the Constitution says that no election can be called within six months of a previous election. January 22 is six months since the last election, so that's next Monday. Under the Constitution, if the government cannot operate, the 
president can dissolve the parliament and call another election. But the president has to call the Council of State and have a discussion about the situation before doing any such thing. Um, the Council of State is an advisory body. It doesn't make the decision. It's up to the president. So now I think there's an expectation that the president would dissolve the parliament maybe on Tuesday or Wednesday of next week, uh, issue the date for an election. And under the Constitution, the election must take place within 60 days. So that would put us into like March 22, 3, 4, something like that, as the outside limit for an election. But it turns out that, uh, you know, several people are saying that public opinion in Timor is firmly on the side of the government. And there's quite a high level of annoyance with the uh, antics of the opposition. The mood of the people is to have an election as soon as possible. So I think it's more likely to be earlier in March and really the date depends on just simply the machinery of uh, running the election rather than a, a political judgment or going to the last minute. Is there a danger, Peter, of getting a similar result to the last election and having another stalemate? Well, it's up to the people. So it seems that uh, there's widespread discussion in the population about what's going on. There's, there is a difficulty because there's no new budget and there's no government program this is sort of a stalling going on in the economy and, uh, and this uh, I think is really annoying people. The words I'm hearing are like the public seems to be quite mature, there's no tension, there's no you know, protest movements, there's simply a, a sort of a consensus that the, there has to be another election. I'm guessing that the outcome will be a bit different from the last one. There are other factors we have to think about besides what I've conveyed because uh, Shenanigus Mao is clearly uh, a key voice or decision maker in the overall political dynamics of the country and he hasn't been inside Timor since September last year. Why? He hasn't explained why. In a technical sense, he's still the leader of the negotiating panel for the seabed boundary with Australia. And that process is going on in a sort of compulsory conciliation process run from the International Court of Justice. You know, that could be an excuse, but clearly they're not negotiating every day or every week. His absence from the country, some people are interpreting it as, you know, um, embarrassment or avoiding, you know, facing up to the difficulties he's created, avoiding having to talk to people in Timor about what, what, why he's doing what he's doing. I think his reputation is suffering as a result. One of the bishops in Timor-Lest has actually publicly called him for acting like a thief. That's, I think, stealing the democracy. The church seems to be, as a whole, supportive of the government in this situation rather than against the government. So, you know, looking at church as an important voice in the country, and, but I think Shanana as a more important voice it's, you know, a bit unpredictable what would happen if uh, an election is called, you know, eight, seven or eight days from now. And how does this um, affect the negotiations over the seabed? Well, I think it will be affecting them because the psychology now is that uh, on the Australian side there might have been a view, yes, we're going to resolve this, 
but the Australian side will be looking at the Timorese side and saying, well, they're not united. Who would really be the government when we sign this? It's not clear. And uh, I, I do think that's weakening the situation. It's also probably delaying an outcome. The, they keep issuing media releases from the Court of Justice saying, yes, the, the final details will be released. You know, in, First it was December, then it was January, now it's March. More of a focus now on the shares of revenues from the Greater Sunrise gas field development. But uh, there's actually been no details about the border at all just general vague statements about it being a fair outcome and uh, there's absolutely no details about the greater sunrise you know the pressure is off the Australian side to finalize this until the Timorese finalize their government and if you think about it if there's an election called and it won't happen till sometime in March then we, won't, we really won't have a government till sometime in April at the earliest and therefore it's maybe May or even June before the seabed boundary thing really gets uh, finalised. Hopefully it is finalised. What about money to keep the government going? The, the way it works in this situation is that the, the previous budget prevails and one-twelfth of the money uh, set aside in the previous budget is made available each month. It's also the same programs as the last budget, so there's mm -hmm. no change, you know, like... In a, in a sense, some spending wouldn't be relevant anymore because maybe that program was completed in the last budget. You know, so so it's a sort of a staggering type of situation. But certainly, the salaries of civil servants uh, is being paid, and costs of schools and uh, hospitals, as in the last budget, would be being paid. So things can tick over, but there really isn't any development going on now. Keep a watching brief on this. Yeah, let's check in next week. Roughly the middle of next week, that'll be the timing, I think. Thanks, Peter. Okay, Jan, thank you very much. And that was activist Peter Murphy. It's 3CR, and the time is 30 minutes past 4 o'clock. And on this first program for 2018, I'm joined by the newly appointed Secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, Dr. Margie Beavis. But, Margie, before we talk about current issues relating to peace and wars and nuclear issues, I'd like to concentrate on you and your journey to the position you've recently held and the new one. When you have far back to find the reasons for your decision to study to become a doctor, are you from a medical family? Yeah, my dad was an obstetrician and he loved his job and that's probably a significant part of why I did medicine because I could see he really loved it. He, he put his heart and soul into it and uh, he worked alone and in his later life he did a lot of campaigning on lack of oxygen at birth and the relationship to cerebral palsy. So I think I got both my enthusiasm for medicine and my um, passion for campaigning from my dad. How did that sort of eventuate? Where did you go to learn? I went to Melbourne Uni. I wasn't terribly creative. That was a lot of fun and then I went on to at St Vincent's Hospital. I worked overseas in New York for about three years while my husband was doing his specialist training. That was fascinating because I worked in southern Brooklyn, which was a very poor part of New York, and it was one of seven free clinics. So it was a real eye-opener for me into how badly poor people in America were covered by the health system and how 
lucky we were to have Medicare and I went over thinking Medicare was pretty ordinary and I came back thinking that Medicare was the best thing since sliced bread. Mm-hmm. How did you get that position there? Well, as I said, my husband was doing his specialist training. I had what was called a limited medical permit. I got my American exams, but you have to technically be in a hospital, supervised by a hospital. I don't like hospital medicine, so what I managed to do was find a job that was effectively a a general practice clinic but technically according to the law it belonged to a hospital so it was about five kilometres from the parent hospital so I was effectively working in a hospital but it was really a general practice clinic. Did you come back to Australia once your husband was qualified? Yes, yes. as soon as he'd he'd done his training we came back. Was there a lot of politics in New York in the hospitals? Did you feel as though people were agitating to get better health care for people? sort of sense of desperation really for instance in a hospital in Australia if you I did have visiting rights at the hospital the parent hospital and you'd send someone in and say look I think this person's got x you know blood infection or whatever and can you do these tests sort of y and z and then you'd go in a couple of hours later to follow up to see what was happening and find that none of the tests had been done because everybody was so slammed that, and also there was a lot of foreign medical graduates I mean one of the reasons I got the job because I was a foreign medical graduate and Foreign medical graduates actually, sadly, are a bit of a mixed bunch. There are some who are very good, but there are some who really have had not as good a training as they could have. And so a combination of a very mixed quality staff and a very high workload meant that the quality of care in this hospital was significantly worse than anything I'd seen in Australia. And what did you come back to? I came back to general practice. Was that difficult to get into a general practice? Oh, no, there's a shortage of general practitioners. Yeah, no, at that time there certainly was a shortage and I think certainly in rural and regional areas in Australia there's still a shortage. And just talk a little bit about how that three years in America changed you and and maybe politicised you to to work more for preventative medicine, looking after people who were less fortunate. I think you start to realise that it's all very well to look after people's blood pressure and coughs and colds, but if you don't actually work at a population level with health, you're missing the boat a bit or you're missing a potential to make a huge amount of change. I mean, people just need to look at what's happened with tobacco in Australia. We're sort of a world leader in tobacco. And by tobacco control, we have saved tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people's lives. We've saved the amount of misery that's been saved. And it's all been come about through working at a very high level, at a policy level, you know, putting taxes on, restricting where people can smoke stopping advertising, making it no longer socially acceptable to smoke. And it's really changed people's lives. So if you can work at a population level, you're much better. And Bill Williams said years ago that what was the point of improving the nation's cholesterol if you left them a a world that was poisoned with sort of nuclear stuff, either nuclear waste or the fallout from nuclear weapons. And I couldn't agree more that, you know, you you have a responsibility as someone who's interested in improving people's health. You can, working at the policy level and working at, at the sort of population level, you can really make huge changes. Was it hard to adjust to Australia after those three years? No, I love Australia. <laughs> no, the <laughs> different... York was so busy and so many people and we made some really good friends and they're an incredibly generous and welcoming people but gee, I was glad to get back to Australia. When did your political activism begin with MAPW? Look, I was a member for many years, pretty quiet. I had a couple of kids and I was sort of focusing on them. And then once the kids got into senior secondary and basically said, go away, Mum, I thought, OK, I'm going away. <laughs> I've got time now. So then I became active in MAPW. So it's probably been about a decade that I've been active with MAPW, or probably a bit under a decade. But it's certainly... I regard it as a real luxury to have the time to be able to be active. I mean, to be able to work on the things you're passionate about 
is a great gift. A lot of people don't have that luxury. That it's, I mean, my husband's in full-time work. I'm able to work part-time and, and spend part-time working on what I really care about. So not that I don't care about medicine, but it, it's, it's, it's a, I think it's a luxury to be able to do it. Talk about some of the people that you've met over those years with MAPW and the places that you've been. And Did you mention Bill Williams there? Were you actually at university with him? We overlapped uh, very temporarily, I'm ashamed to say. Had a very socially active second year and managed to fail second year. He took a year off and went and travelled. And so we overlapped briefly in our um, training. We weren't in the same year for the whole time, but we did overlap a bit. The thing that Bill could do was cut through the crap and he also had a really good understanding of population health and also a really good understanding of social injustice. I mean, he spent a lot of time in the outback working with Aboriginal populations and he could see the damage that had been done. He understood with the nuclear tests at Emu Fields and Maralinga what a travesty that was to those people. He could cut through the crap. He's a tremendous public speaker, very clear very passionate, very evocative. And he, he was certainly was someone who, who made me think about, you know, I could do this. Not, not that I do it in any way like he does, but, but if someone can, can speak out, then having other voices speak out is really good, and I have a diversity of voices are speaking out. I mean, Tillman Ruff and Dimity Hawkins both were really impressive people, worked very passionately on nuclear issues. The person who really got me involved actually was Nancy Atkins, who said to me, come on, Maggie, you can do more than this. And I thought, well, actually, she's right, I can. <laughs> Just by sort of asking me if I'd do something, it was sort of interesting to be asked then. Jenny Grounds is tremendous. Uh, she's worked very hard and long. I mean, there's so many people. One of the joys of working in advocacy and in an area you care about is you meet all these amazing people, and Jenny's been a sort of tower of strength. Jenny Henty, a woman who would be surprised to be in this list, but she's a, a woman from Canterbury, I think, who set up an organisation called... Well, she was involved in an organisation just trying to prevent waste. She stood for the Greens, and I thought, well, if Jenny can get so politically active, why can't I? And Bob Brown, of course, is a bit of an inspiration. He's someone who can sort of cut through and say things how they are and what needs to be done. So what you're saying, you're also involved with the Greens? I am. <laughs> Although for MAPW's sake and for ICANN's sake, it's very important that they are a political organisation. So I do do stuff with the Greens, but I actually do try and keep them separate because I think for advocacy it needs to be about health rather than politics. And what has that advocacy meant? What sort of work have you done over those years? Well, I've done the work on nuclear weapons and waste, which we've talked about on previous things. I also did a Masters of Public Health looking at the impacts of public transport and mode of transport on health because I think we're increasingly overweight and really part of that is the fact that we're not exercising as much. And it's interesting, the research did show that people who walked or used public transport or cycled got much more exercise and had much fewer strokes and heart attacks and what have you than people who drove their car to work. Interestingly, one of the other things that fell out of the data was that having a company car was a bit of a health hazard, which sort of made me smile a bit. Yes, so I'm inter- I am interested in population health and, and the Masters of Public Health degree, which I did about eight years ago, was a surprisingly political degree because you sort of realised that there was, there was so much that needed to be done at the public health space and so much is going to be done very cheaply. I mean, we should have a tax on sugar. Why don't we have a tax on sugar? There's many things you can do very cheaply that would really improve health at a population level. And one of the foci of that Masters was looking at communities, wasn't it? And was it Point Cook where you focused on the people being shoved out into the, in the middle of nowhere, as, so to speak, and then 
having to rely on cars or being families being isolated, women being isolated if they didn't have a car? The interesting thing was that not only was it who did the transport, but where you lived was important. And in fact, if you looked at the sort of amount of exercise people got, the further you got out from the city, the less exercise you got in terms of transport because you were so dependent on a car. We were building these suburbs with such poor planning that they were actually building car-dependent suburbs. So these suburbs like Point Cook and even further out now than that, they have no choice. There's no reasonable public transport. All the destinations are so spread out they don't have much option and also it makes them very expensive to live in because they have to have a number of different cars for every adult so it just it, it really was a, a reflection on Melbourne's public planning which I still think is very much driven by political expediency and developers I think that, that um, we really need very big reframing of our urban policy. And also the mental health issues of people being stranded and isolated? Well interestingly and you know, your listeners are probably aware of this but 30 to 40 minutes exercise five days a week is equivalent to taking a mild antidepressant that exercise is a really powerful antidepressant and yes isolation but also immobility means that people are much more likely to get depressed yes I think these suburbs are not only as you said they are people are more likely to get depressed in these suburbs and that actually came out of the data of my master's project as well. Looking at the three years or so that you were the president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War did that take you overseas? Yes, mainly just recently, with the, I suppose it was with ICANN as well, but the recent peace prize that was given to ICANN meant that, well, two things. I went to New York to do some advocacy for the United Nations Treaty in the middle of last year, and then again went to Oslo to join the celebrations of the peace prize in December. So certainly I've recently been doing a lot of travel. Most of the travel with MAPW actually did was over to South Australia and also to Canberra, sort of in terms of lobbying trips and speaking trips um, I've also done to Queensland and New South Wales but but certainly for South Australia which has been so targeted for nuclear waste actually talking to people and saying that this waste facility the international waste facility was completely folly it was taking on a lot of toxic material and a huge financial risk for very little benefit and I'm very glad that that proposal is completely gone but the current federal waste where Australia's own waste the proposal, again, is substandard. People are being told a lot of information that's not correct. So going over and meeting with communities, and Aboriginal communities in particular, has been part of the role. So, yes, it's been, it's been very interesting. I've gone to places I wouldn't have gone and met some very amazing people I wouldn't have otherwise met. And going back before your presidency, there was 2011, the aftermath of the Fukushima disaster? Yes, I went to Japan after Fukushima. There was a conference the January after the march of the disaster which was basically looking at uh, hoping for a nuclear-free Japan so that Japan could be not dependent on nuclear power anymore because really it's such an earthquake-prone country, they're very high risk, but also they're very high risk because there's a huge interlinking between the people who regulate the industry and the people who run the industry. So it's a very poorly regulated industry. There's a lot of corruption. And the investigation of the Fukushima accident by the Japanese parliament, the Diet, came out with a wonderful report just saying this was a completely man-made disaster that people of Fukushima had been advised on two, had had modelling on two occasions that they needed a bigger seawall, they'd put their pumps in the wrong place. There was, there was error after error after error after error. Poor regulation, cost-cutting, political manipulation, cultural issues where people just do what they're told instead of thinking what they're told. It, it, it all paid apart. I mean, interestingly, the Fukushima accident 
at one stage, the bloke who was in charge whilst it was happening rang TEPCO and said, I need to flood the reactors with seawater, otherwise they're going to have really massive meltdowns and explosions. Once seawater's in the reactors, that's the end of the reactor. You can't ever use it again. And TEPCO said, no, you can't. The manager of the plant flooded them anyway and probably saved, probably saved Tokyo. That's just one example. If people want an interesting read, go and read the, the Diet Report on the Fukushima accident because it's really um, an object lesson on how humans, yeah, cost-cutting, poor regulation, political being in bed with each other, all tied together to make a disaster. And now nearly seven years later, after the, all the power plants in Japan were closed down, they're talking about reopening at least, I think there's one open, and they're talking about the largest one, which is on the west coast, maybe being open next year, and that's a TEPCO one, which is the same design as the Fukushima one. Interesting, yeah, I think it's folly, but what's interesting is that there's starting to be an ex-Prime Minister now, I can't remember which one it was, but one of the more recent Prime Ministers has come out saying, no, Japan needs to be nuclear-free, and is starting to really agitate to say, you know, we don't need this nuclear power and I think there's, a, there's certainly been a long term movement of trying to get Japan to be nuclear free but I think there's sort of a resurgence now and I'm hopeful that Japanese politics can mobilise sufficiently to, to maybe make that happen and defer that coming online and start to see if they can take, I think there's two online at the moment but take them offline because when the Prime Minister came out here and said, was asked why is Japan going back to nuclear power given the disaster, he said well really the only reason is that the the investment that's in these power plants. It's all about money. It's not about safety. It's not about need. It's about the fact that there's an invested, a fixed amount of money that is invested and needs return. So I think for Japan, it's very interesting. And I think watch this space. I'm hopeful that, yeah, I'm hopeful that that reopening may be prevented and that they may actually start get enough of a political groundswell of opinion to start putting pressure on to close down the one, the couple that are open. Well, just the fact that they've done without them all these years, they can do without them forever. Yes, although they have had to, in fairness, there has been increased emissions because they've had to use gas and other sources of energy. But certainly renewables, it's wonderful, renewables are now so cheap that nuclear power is effectively obsolete. New nuclear power is way too expensive and way too slow and not, not to mention dirty and dangerous. But it's one of the really nice things about the surge in renewable energy is that nuclear power is effectively dead in the water. Well, you're now the Secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. What is, what is that going to mean for you? <laughs> Lots of paperwork. <laughs> Minutes. And, and yes, we've got a new website we're developing and putting together the feedback for that to get that up and running. So, But, but it's, it, once again, it's really good to be part of the organisation. Well, just looking at the, the future for nuclear power and nuclear waste, around the world, what is your assessment of what's happening? As I said, nuclear power, I think new nuclear power is very much on, on the way out, just, just purely in dollar terms. The nuclear enthusiasts push for two different things. One's called a small modular reactor, which they say these little reactors that are so much better and new, beautiful and wonderful. They've been trying to get a small modular reactor industry set up in America, but the only problem is that nobody's ordering them. Since nobody's ordering them, and they can't make them. They may get up if they're very heavily subsidised by government, but I, I think that, again, just because renewables have been so much cheaper, that won't happen. And then there's the Generation 4 reactors, which have been over and over and over again tried out. These are the reactors that will use nuclear waste as fuel, 
which is a very appealing concept, but the problem is that the waste they then produce is even more toxic and also that they are highly dangerous. They have, for instance, the Monju reactor, which was a Gen 4 reactor in Japan, has been closed down after hundreds of millions of dollars being spent on it. These are very, very expensive technologies and quite dangerous to run, high risk of leakage. And I think, as Jim Green, that wonderful expert from Friends of the Earth, said, the best nuclear reactors are the ones that are on paper because they, they, they don't have accidents. But once they get into the real world, the Gen 4 and the small modular reactors have got a lot of problems in their own right. With nuclear waste, I think... Certainly internationally, that's a problem that hasn't been solved. These reactors are all continuing to produce waste. This waste is continuing to be stockpiled at the reactors. They have metallic metal block on the name, but they have these concrete and metal cylinders that they store in dry casks. And they think they'll last 60 years, or well, 60 years is a drop in the bucket for material that needs to be isolated for 10,000 to 100,000 years. So um, I think that there are high-level waste dumps being developed in Okaluto and that's good, that's, a, that's a, um, a very deep underground facility that they've spent 45 years researching to check the soil's okay. So they're trying to find places to put this waste, but really the sooner we can switch away from nuclear waste, from nuclear power to renewables, the less of the waste will be leaving for future generations. 2018 is going to be a very busy year for MAPW and also for ICANN to get the get those numbers up? Yes, we're working hard. The treaty, as you know, was supported by 122 nations. We've got about 56, 58 signatories now. We now need to get them, those countries, by signatories I mean countries that have signed the treaty. We need 50 countries to sign it and ratify it for it to come into international law and we always thought that would take a couple of years. So we're working on that internationally and then locally the Australian government shamefully still seems to think nuclear weapons make the world a safer place, which is such an illusion. So they support nuclear weapons. And the Australian population recognises that nuclear weapons are a really dumb idea and certainly not safe because they're such a risk of king or extremist or human error or stable geniuses, you know. There's so many... So Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump have certainly made people think about nuclear again. And between 70 and 80% of Australians support nuclear disarmament. So we're talking to the Labor Party because they have a reasonable policy in getting them to come on board with potentially signing this treaty. And I think as each country gradually, as each population recognises that they need to influence their politicians and get this treaty underway. Because once a treaty is enforced, a whole lot of things will follow in terms of divestment. Military will realise that they're committing a war crime if they use nuclear weapons. And you can have sort of very sort of stable negotiations to bring about sort of steady, balanced, verifiable, stepwise reductions in stockpiles. In 2000, the, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty had a terrific timetable for actually doing these verifiable, balanced, stepwise reductions in stockpiles. But George Bush withdrew from that agreement. So we just need to get things back on track. It'll, it'll take a couple of decades, but... We just need to keep working on it. You mentioned the Australian Labor Party there. Is it true that um, you've yet to be, ICANN has yet to be congratulated for your Nobel Peace Prize from the Australian Labor Party? We got some nice congratulations, I think, from, I think it might have been Penny Wong or Tanya Plibersek, and also that these were retweeted, these are tweets that were retweeted 
by various members of the ALP, we have yet to receive a formal letter. A mixed view, so that's uh, something we need to work on as well. Absolutely. Okay, Margie, talk to you later. And that's Dr. Margie B. <coughs> you did. That's Dr. Margie Beavis, the immediate past president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and is now the secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. You are listening to 3CR. You can be listening on your radio, 8.55am on your digital 3CR. You could be streaming on 3cr.org.au or you could be listening at a later stage to the podcast on 3cr.org.au. It's 4.35. Lest we forget, join us to commemorate the 176th anniversary of the execution of the two freedom fighters, Tanaminawai and Moorbohina, at the Tanaminawai and Moorbohina Monument, corner of Victoria and Franklin Street, Melbourne. Do you know the names of the first men hanged here in Melbourne town? Join us midday, Saturday the 25th January 2018 and then walk with us to their last resting place in the Queen Victoria markets. The ceremony will be broadcast live on Community Radio 3CR, 3cr.org.au. Far from their ancestral homes down in Van Diemen's land Knew their lives would be in vain if they didn't take a stand. Last year, in the lead up to the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, Chris Gaffney, 3CR broadcaster and activist, began a series of interviews which were to culminate in the revolution, its aftermath, and the demise of the Soviet Union. Unfortunately, ill health prevented Chris from concluding his talks on Tuesday home time, but he recorded a number of years ago as part of the Victorian Labor College, a lecture series, which Chris has lent me. So this week, lectures 12 and 13, the defence of the Russian Revolution, and we'll go on to talk about the Russian Revolution from Lenin to Stalin. The Invasion of Russia Despite extreme hardship and difficulties, the overwhelming support for the Soviet government from the armed workers and the Red Guard enabled the Soviets to disperse the Constituent Assembly without resistance. The World War came to an end in November 1918, thus relieving the pressure of the German armies. However, the revolution was confronted with further dangers from an invasion on several fronts organised by international capitalism. In their efforts to destroy the Soviet, no money was spared. Opportunist generals were provided with funds so long as they were prepared to take an army into Russia to destroy the Soviet. International recruiting officers were open for this purpose. At the same time, an economic blockade was enforced by world capitalism on Russia. The struggle against the invading armies lasted over a period of two years, sometimes on more than one front at a time. But by the end of 1920, the last of the invading armies had been driven over the frontiers the Soviet power was finally established, and the Allied blockade lifted also in 1920. Trotsky had created, organised, and led the Red Army from the rawest material into a force which defeated invaders from all over the capitalist world. 
the Brest-Litovsk's peace. A dangerous threat to the revolution was contained in the German advance into Russia after the 1917 seizure of power. Peace negotiations had reached a deadlock by January 1918, the Germans becoming furious at Bolshevik propaganda. On the eve of the All-Russian Congress of Soviets, the Bolshevik section leaders meant to clearly clarify the position on peace terms in the German advance. Three points of views were voted on. 1. Lenin, for immediate signing of the peace terms. 2. Trotsky, for the breaking off of negotiations, making it evident that German violence was responsible. 3. Revolutionary war on the Germans. The voting was 15 in favour of 1, 16 for 2 and 32 for 3. The Central Committee of the Bolshevik Party met next day. Lenin outlined the impossibility of fighting against the peace terms, however infamous, and that refusal to sign, we will be swept away, he said, and another government set up would, be, would, would sign it. Trotsky advocated prolonging negotiations and the issuing of international propaganda for a German revolution, which he said would be more important than that of Russia. Trotsky's view gained the majority, and on January the 14th, his slogan, Neither War Nor Peace, was adopted at a meeting of the Bolshevik Central Committee with the left social revolutionaries. In the month of February, the German army still continued to advance into Russia. Trotsky's opinion that the weakened German armies would be finally stopped, plus great strikes in Berlin that shows tendencies of spreading, confirmed his position to sit tight and depend on a German attack precipitating a revolution. And this was still remained the majority decision, despite opposition from Lenin. By February the 14th, the German armies marched through Poland and the Ukraine, encountering little resistance. The socialist fatherland was declared to be in a state of danger, and the following decree was issued. Defend every position as long as possible. Destroy the railroads before the advance. Destroyed food and munition stocks rather than abandon them. Mobilise city masses to dig trenches under supervision of military experts. All able-bodied adults, male and female of the bourgeois class, must join this work. All those who resist will be shot. D. All papers hostile to revolutionary defence to be suspended. Editors and staff of these papers to join in the work of the defence. E. To shoot on sight all agents of the enemy, speculators, thieves and counter-revolutionary agitators. End of quote. While the workers were enthusiastic to defend the revolution, the peasants refused support. A new German offensive brought them near to the capital. Lenin again proposed to the Central Committee the immediate signing of peace. Again he was defeated, this time by one vote. So critical was the situation that the Central Committee met twice a day and speakers were limited to five minutes, writes Victor Serge. Finally, when it was seen that the peasants refused cooperation, Trotsky went over to Lenin's position, resulting in Lenin gaining the majority vote. Both Lenin and Trotsky were given the task of drawing up the cablegram to the Germans. More difficult terms were insisted upon. Russia was ordered to sign away the Baltic territories, Poland, Lithuania, Estonia, Ukraine and Finland. Lenin threatened to resign if the terms were not accepted. He gained the majority, and at the All-Russian Soviet Congress in February 1918, Trotsky and Kamenev reported on the peace terms, which Congress endorsed and which was finally signed at Brest-Litovsk in March 1918. Lenin reminded the Soviet Congress that the Soviet had lasted five days longer than the Paris Commune. 
Among his notable speeches at this Congress, two are worth recognition. Emphasising the bloc between the Bolsheviks and the left social revolutionaries, as illustrating the alliance between workers and peasants, Lenin said, quote, Never in history has any question relating to the class struggle been solved other than by violence. We are partisans of violence as long as it emanates from the exploited toiling masses and is directed against the exploiters. End of quote. Again, in presenting an historical conception of the Russian Revolution in relation to the world movement, quote, Marx and Engels used to say, France will begin and Germany will finish the revolution. They said France would begin the revolution because during the decades of struggle, she had acquired the devotion and initiative that put her in the vanguard of the socialist movement. We say that the revolution begins more easily in a country where there is no large class of exploiters who are able to corrupt the upper sections of the working class with the loot of the colonial exploitation. Russia has begun. Germany, France and England will finish the revolution. Socialism will triumph. End of quote. After Brest-Liptovsk, Russia lost 40% of its proletariat with the occupation of the Donetsk oil basin by the Germans. 90% of the fuel industry, 90% of the sugar industry, 65% of the metal and 50% of the wheat. The left communists proclaimed Brest-Litovsk's peace as the slow death of the revolution. The left communists and the left social revolutionaries drew nearer to one another in criticism of the Brest Treaty. They considered it a greater evil than the war. Then in the majority waited for the collapse of Germany and world revolution. Unity was achieved when the opposition was granted representation on the Central Committee at the 7th Bolshevik, now Communist Party, Congress. Pointing to the difficulties confronting the countries of Europe in overthrowing the bourgeoisie, Lenin at the 7th Party Congress said, quote, One of the essential differences between a bourgeois revolution and a socialist is that the former, born out of the feudal order, builds up its economic organs little by little in the heart of the old regime. If only by the development of commerce, which gradually modifies the whole appearance of feudal society. It's quite otherwise with the socialist revolution. Here we have much more than the task of destruction. We have infinitely the more difficult task of organisation. It's quite true, without the German revolution we shall perish. Perhaps we shall not perish in Moscow, but at Vladivostok. In any case, we shall perish without the German revolution. On the nature of the Soviet state, Lenin said, It's a new type of state, without a bureaucracy, without a police, without a standing army. A state which substitutes for bourgeois democracy a new type of democracy, forces the toiling masses into the vanguard, gives the legislative, executive and military power to the workers, thus creating an apparatus which is destined to re-educate these same masses. We are only beginning our work in Russia, and for the moment we are beginning it badly. For the rest of his life, Lenin devoted his attention to the consolidation of the Soviet state. He was seriously wounded in an attempt on his life in August 1918, but recovered to see the civil war brought to a successful conclusion and the repulsion of invading armies. He also saw the beginning of economic rehabilitation in his insistence on the new economic policy instituted in 1921, which utilised largely peasant private enterprise to revive the nation's shattered economy. In 1919, Lenin and the Bolsheviks witnessed the establishment of the Third International, 
an international of revolutionary Marxist parties, which degenerated under Stalin into an international agency serving the Russian bureaucracy's current policy needs. Nevertheless, the international held four congresses during Lenin's lifetime, despite the difficulties of civil war and reconstruction. His last couple of years were preoccupied with the growing bureaucratization of the Soviet Union. Thus, and he says this, with the exception of the, the people's, that is Trotsky's, commissariat of foreign affairs, our state apparatus is to a considerable extent a survival of the past and has undergone hardly any serious change. The strike struggle in a state where the proletariat holds political power can be explained and justified only by bureaucratic distortions of the proletariat state and by all sorts of survivals of the old capitalist system in the government offices on the one hand and by the political immaturity and cultural backwardness of the mass of the working people on the other. Volume 33, page 87 of Lenin's Collected Works. We see a growing alliance between Lenin and Trotsky against this bureaucratization, as personified by men like Stalin. Lenin, in his so-called Testament, see volume 36, page 594, in this he calls for the removal of Stalin from the post of party secretary. This testament was suppressed after Lenin's death. We should not see this testament or the struggles between Stalin and Trotsky after Lenin's death in personal terms, but as a struggle between social forces. At the end of 1922, Lenin suffered a stroke. He continued to work between and during attacks of paralysis during 1923 and died on January 21, 1924. The Russian Revolution from Lenin to Stalin the creation of a working-class Soviet state would not have been possible unless two factors had been drawn together. One was a peasant war against the large landowners, and the other was a working-class revolt directed against the property classes. What linked these two processes together was not an identical aim, but the inability of the industrial bourgeoisie to break politically from the large landowners. This inability pushed the peasantry, which in practice meant the army, and the workers into the same camp. The urban revolt could not have succeeded but for the sympathy of the large peasant army. Nor could the peasants have waged a successful struggle unless led and welded together by a centralised external force. Only the working class was capable of providing this leadership. The bourgeoisie and the landowners were expropriated, but the peasant and the workers shared no simple long-term interests. This and the fact that the proletariat was a minority preoccupied Russian socialism long before the revolution. They all believed, with the exception of Trotsky and Parvis, that the revolution would be a bourgeois one. In fact, Lenin maintained this view up to April 1917. When he and the Bolsheviks did accept that a social revolution was possible, even though the workers were a minority, it was on the basis that it was the first stage of a worldwide revolution. In February 1917, Lenin wrote that the Russian proletariat cannot by its own force victoriously complete the socialist revolution, and after the revolution repeated this basic Bolshevik assumption continually. Quote, the absolute truth is that without a revolution in Germany we shall perish. That was from the 7th of March 1918. The five years after the revolution saw encouraging signs of world revolution. Communist parties were established in most countries, including the Communist Party of Australia in 1920. 
In Germany and Austria, military defeat destroyed the monarchy, while in Hungary and Bavaria, Soviet governments took power briefly. An attempted uprising by the German Spartacists resulted in the murder of Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht. But reformism was too firmly entrenched in most countries for the revolutionary upsurge to be carried through to the establishment of Soviet power. Communist groups with a mass base often failed to act, while those who revolted without this mass base suffered defeat. Within Russia, the Bolsheviks saw revolution abroad and defence of the Soviet Republic as inseparable. Unless this revolution came, Russia would have to be defended against the white armies and the foreign armies. By a combination of will, organisation and revolutionary spirit, the counter-revolutionary forces were driven out by 1920, but the price paid was enormous. In 1920, the production of pig iron was only 3% of the pre-war level. Of hemp, 10%. Flax, 25 Cotton, 11 Beets, 15 This resulted in misery, starvation and famine on a wide scale. The decline of the Soviets. Dislocation of production meant dislocation of the working class, which was reduced to 43% of its former numbers. Remember, this was the class that, that was at the heart of Soviet power, and by the early 1920s, it was under half of its 1917 strength. Industrial output was only 18% of the pre-war figure, and labour productivity only a third of what it had been. Workers were forced to barter with peasants for the necessities of life. Not only was the class decimated, but the very people in the factories had changed. The most militant workers went to fight at the front while those that survived were required as cadets in the army, the factories and in the state machinery. Their places were taken by peasants devoid of socialist aspirations. The Bolsheviks had expected to be defeated by the invaders if the revolution didn't spread. The invaders were repulsed, but at the cost of the class that had made the revolution, which was to produce distortions and the degeneration of the Soviets. The Soviets of 1917 were organically connected with the class that had led the revolution. Between representative and worker there was no gap. When the mass was Menshevik, the Soviets were Mensheviks. When the masses began to follow the Bolsheviks, so did the Soviets. The Bolshevik party was merely the body of class-conscious militants who could frame policies and provide the lead for working-class action. This was only possible if the mass of workers would follow them. Even opponents of the Bolsheviks recognised this, like Martov, a leading Menshevik. And I'm quoting here. Understand, please, that before us is a victorious uprising of the proletariat. Almost the entire proletariat supports Lenin and expects its social liberation from the uprising. End of quote. Until the Civil War, this democratic dialogue between the party and the class continued. The Mensheviks continued to operate and compete with the Bolsheviks for support until June 1918. The decimation of the working class changed this. Those who were the lifeblood of the Soviets, the socialist workers, were spread all over Russia. They required coordination by a centralised government apparatus, increasingly independent of their control and control by the Soviets. The right-wing social revolutionaries were on the side of counter-revolution. The left social revolutionaries were unreliable allies. The Mensheviks supported the Bolsheviks against the counter-revolution with the demand that the Bolsheviks hand over power to the Constituent Assembly, which was also one of the chief demands of the counter-revolution. 
Many Mensheviks in practice went over to the side of the whites. The Bolsheviks allowed Menshevik members freedom, but after June 1918 they were not allowed a press. In all this the Bolsheviks had no choice. They could not allow propaganda to opponents of Soviet power, particularly in a time of civil war, and especially as the working class was less and less organised, so as to be able to determine its own interests. From 1920, the Soviet state was a single-party state, although the Mensheviks continued to operate in the Soviets until 1920. With the end of the civil war, tensions in Soviet society did not abate, but increased as the cord that bound workers and peasants was cut. The peasants now had control of the land, free from counter-revolution. They had individual aspirations, which flowed from their productive activity. They sought to improve their own standard of living through their own activities on their own plot of land, and they retained their coherence only in opposing taxes and the forcible collections of grains which the cities demanded of them. And that was part one of the... Russian Revolution around that time. And the next week it will be from Lenin to Stalin. And that was, of course, was Chris Gaffney. You're listening to 3CR and this is Tuesday Home Time. And the time is five minutes to five o'clock. So we've got another hour and five minutes. And coming up in a moment, we're hearing about trade, aid, China, Australia, other countries. And then we'll be hearing about the crisis in Iraq. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogra, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. The Solidarity and Defence Fund is a democratically controlled fund that materially supports activists who are facing legal sanctions or other problems due to their stand against injustice and oppression. All contributors who pledge at least $5 a month can take part in collectively making decisions about how the fund is used. Your contributions support and grow movements for social justice and defend activists in the fight for a better world. For more information or to join, go to patreon.com forward slash solidarity defense fund. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash solidarity defense fund. A 3CR supporter. And also for the first program for 2018, I'm joined by researcher and journalist Nick McClellan. A bit more controversy between Australia and China in recent weeks. There's been a real diplomatic spat following statements by the Minister for International Development and Pacific Affairs, Conchetta Fieravanti-Wells, the New South Wales Senator, who's a member of Tony Abbott's uh, hard-right faction within the Liberal Party, has been outspoken criticising Chinese aid and loans to the Pacific Islands. She's uh, been a regular tourist to the region, uh, lobbying on behalf of Australian policy, and she came out criticising uh, 
Chinese aid programs, talking about uh, roads to nowhere, that the Chinese have built a series of white elephants, you know, major buildings and sporting stadiums and parliamentary buildings and so on that were sitting there unattended, caused an enormous anger in, in Beijing, not only for the, the content of the particular topic, but it fits into a broader pattern about the Turnbull government being more assertive against China, really joining the United States in its current uh, policies of containment of China within the Asia-Pacific region. What's in it for Australia? You know, one of the major features of Australian strategic and defence policy going back to the 1980s has been to see the islands to the north and east of Australia as part of a strategic barrier against threats. I mean, going right back to the 1890s, the worries about threat from the north has been an element of Australian defence. But if you look at defence white papers going back to 1987 when Kim Beasley, Labor leader, was then defence minister, the Dib review at that time recognised that countries like Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, Fiji and others were part of a, a, a strategic area for Australia and the defence of sea lanes and so on. And so successive defence white papers have said that this is an area that there really needs to be strategic denial, that no foreign uh, competitor, uh, no foreign country should gain strategic control of the arc of islands to the north and east of Australia. And so Australia's defence policy and economic foreign policy has been based on the notion of trying to build greater economic and security integration with neighbouring island countries in the southwest Pacific. Countries in the northern Pacific, like the Marshall Islands, um, Federated States of Micronesia, Palau, have been part of the American sphere. They were former American colonies, um, and they're very much integrated into American defence policy with bases in Guam and Hawaii. But the southwest Pacific countries, uh, our nearest neighbours like Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, Solomons, uh, Fiji and so on, are seen as part of our sphere of influence. Uh, but what's changed over recent decades has been a new Pacific diplomacy where Pacific countries have been looking to build partnerships, economic, trade, investment, uh, political, with other countries, simply because on many policy issues, as we've talked about on this program before, Australia is on the wrong side of history. Our commitment, for example, to fossil fuel exports, oil, gas and particularly coal, goes against the long-standing policies of most of our Pacific Island neighbours who are calling for an end to fossil fuel exports. No new mines like the Adani mine, which our government is committed to, and so on. So there are some really big differences. And Pacific Island countries have always, as small microstates, small island developing states, have always had to deal with great and powerful friends, be they colonial powers like Britain, France, the United States, or newer players on the block. And we see that happening today, where Pacific Island countries are building trade, aid, political links with countries in Asia, emerging Asian economies, particularly China, but not just China, it's Indonesia, it's Korea, it's uh, India as well, who are looking at the geopolitics of the region. And it's causing ructions in Canberra, and to a certain extent Wellington in New Zealand, because uh, historically the southwest Pacific's been an area controlled by the ANZUS allies and by France. And now you've got a whole range of new players in the region who are providing diplomatic support at the UN and or providing uh, investment, uh, loans uh, and development aid. That's particularly true in Fiji. Um, after the 2006 coup, uh, led by uh, then Rear Admiral Bani Marama 
and particularly after 2009 when Fiji abrogated the constitution and um, had direct military rule for a number of years, Australia, New Zealand, the Commonwealth, uh, the EU and other Western powers cut aid and support to the Fiji regime at the time. There were trade bans, there were some aid sanctions and so on. And so Fiji really expanded a trend that had been going for decades to build links on the international stage. And Fiji established diplomatic relations with a number of mid-level developing countries, Brazil, South Africa, Korea, uh, Nigeria and others, the United Arab Emirates and many other countries like that, also Iran, and they also expanded links with China that go back many decades on a small scale, but have really blossomed and bloomed since that time. And now we see, just as Australia is having a debate about what's our relationship with China as a strategic competitor, but as a major economic power, so the Pacific's having the same discussion. People in the Pacific are always pissed off when Australians lecture them about engaging with China. They say quite pointedly, well, hang on, New Zealand's had a free trade agreement with China since 2009. Australia's been negotiating a free trade agreement with China. Why shouldn't we have it? You know, the Port of Darwin was bought by a Chinese corporation. So major infrastructure in Australia, in agriculture, in energy, in mining, has had Chinese investment. Why shouldn't we also have Chinese investment? A certain anger that Australia lectures on this topic um, when Australians are having the same debate about what's the relationship with the regime in China and what level of Chinese investment, what level of foreign investment is appropriate uh, in the Australian economy. So Pacific leaders find when Conchetta Feliavanti-Well starts lecturing them about receiving Chinese aid, the general tone is pot kettle, as <laughs> one might say. Well, you know, you wonder what Australia expected if they keep on cutting their aid budget every year and, and then expecting everyone to bow down to them every year. And this is the fundamental hypocrisy of what the Minister's mm. talking about. Under the Abbott government, we've seen a massive cut to the aid budget, expanded under the Turnbull government. I must say this began under Labor. In the last years of the Gillard government, uh, the ALP diverted $385 million out of the overseas aid budget towards a refugee processing within Australia because of the, the major concern about boat people. What was a bipartisan commitment to expand the aid program has been abandoned by both major parties. Years ago in the 1970s, Australia pledged to have 0.7% of its gross national income as aid. That's an international standard that's met by a number of Scandinavian countries, for example, like Sweden, Britain and others um, uh, make uh, you know, less than 1% of national income goes to international development programs. But we've gone backwards we were, under the Rudd government, uh, increasing from uh, 0.4 towards 0.5, but over the last few years that's dropped backwards to 0.26. And in fact, that's the lowest level since 1974, since we started using figures through the OECD to measure how much aid countries were giving from OECD members. And indeed, under Scott Morrison, the budget papers say that our overseas aid program is due to drop to 0.2% by 2020, uh, those forward estimates. So under the Abbott government, from the projections of the early days of going from 0.4 to 0.5, heading up towards 0.7, over $11 billion has been taken out of the aid program. What would that $11 billion being spent on? Well, all sorts of things. I mean, a lot of overseas aid is for strategic purposes and to benefit the donor country. 
Um, in the Pacific, people talk about boomerang aid, where Australia throws out its aid, but it comes back to benefit Australia. And that's where everything, for example, Australian companies might get a contract to manage part of the program. And so, uh, you know, the benefits and profits fly back to Australia. So Australian taxpayers are essentially subsidising Australian business. So whether it's providing goods and services or technical assistance, consultants or whatever, Australia, you know, will benefit from money being put into aid. It might provide infrastructure that would benefit Australian companies. So we provide aid to carnival cruisers who do cruises through the South Pacific. If we build a wharf, then they can get passengers off. So, you know, it, it, a lot of it's there. But obviously there's humanitarian impacts from, from overseas aid. There's a whole debate about targeting aid, what sort of aid benefits ordinary people. One of the big things that Pacific countries have been calling for is uh, money for infrastructure, for roads, ports, wharves and, and airports and so on. That's where Australia has some competition. Australia, together with other Western powers like the United States and the EU, Japan, has funded money into the what's called the Pacific Regional Infrastructure Facility sorry about the jargon, PRIF, P-R-I-F, which is basically a common pool of money from a number of donors, including Asian Development Bank, Japan and so on, to provide infrastructure within the region. And that money has been used over many years. Now, though, there's competition. China has created uh, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank with a portfolio of billions and billions of dollars for the Pacific, just like countries throughout Southeast Asia and so on, Instead of taking money from the Asian Development Bank with certain conditionalities, you can get money from China instead, or from other donors like Indonesia and so on. The Western powers that have historically governed the Southwest Pacific and provided the funding, if you don't get money from us, there's no alternative. Today there are alternatives. To give the Senator her due, uh, you know, those alternatives are not always great. Um, there are questions about white elephant buildings. You know, if you build massive buildings, is the money there to pay for the cleaners and the maintenance, the energy that's going to be used? If you build a massive new hospital, is it appropriate? And that's a particular issue for small island states. You know, a country of Tuvalu with 10,000 people needs aid and aid projects tailored to its particular needs. So there's a legitimate debate about what sort of aid and what's it being used for. How much does it benefit local people? How much does it benefit foreigners? But I think what we're seeing with the Minister's current critique of the Chinese aid, it's part of this attempt to contain China. And although Australian politicians don't like saying it, you know, it's clear that we are building links with the United States, Japan and India, a quadrilateral relationship to limit China's strategic influence within the Asia-Pacific region. Only this week, uh, Malcolm Turnbull has been talking with the Prime Minister of Japan about allowing Japanese defence forces to operate within Australia, expanding interoperability, use the jargon, uh, between J Japanese uh, military forces and Australian military forces, allowing Japanese troops to operate in the Northern Territory and so on. So we're seeing that strengthening of the alliance um, and so on. This all comes at a time when the Trump administration is you know, saying, I've got a bigger button than you, and threatening fire and fury genocide against the people of Korea but uh, hey let's not say we're aligning ourselves with that sort of nuclear war fighting policy and so there are real tensions in the region and our Pacific neighbours are standing aside from that sort of containment uh, for economic, for political reasons and so on because on issues that really concern them about national security about for example the threat not from Chinese invasion but the threat from climate change, Australia's on the wrong side of history in those debates and in fact in global negotiations we're often opposed to policies being advanced by our Pacific neighbours 
So you've got this, this firestorm of, of things happening all at once. And so the diplomatic spat, you know, the headlines that we've seen um, with Conchita Ferriavanti Wells talking about aid exposes a number of elements. One is just the whole hypocrisy of lecturing people about aid when under the Julie Bishop and, 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 and the minister, we've seen the destruction of a lot of capacity in the Australian aid program, slashing the budget, merging AusAid, an independent statute to the authority, into foreign affairs, cutting back on humanitarian aid in many areas, but increasing the amount of money for aid for trade to benefit Australian business interests. And, you know, there's a whole series of areas where Australian policy in the region has done enormous damage to Australia's reputation. The export of fossil fuels at a time that the Pacific's calling for action, urgent action on climate change. The total disaster of our refugee policy with the expensive and humanitarian disaster of warehousing asylum seekers and refugees in Manus and Nauru, causing enormous political reverberations within those communities. The two decades spent on trade policy that's ended up with the PESA Plus trade agreement that the two largest island economies, Papua New Guinea and Fiji, have refused to sign. This was a flagship, a centrepiece of Australia's engagement with the region, and it's such a bad trade agreement that the two largest economies aren't signing it. So we have major trading relations with Tuvalu and Kiribati and so on. It's a joke. So there's some positive things happening, you know, about seasonal workers and so on coming into Australia. But Australia's policy in the region has been having a series of setbacks, you know, cutbacks to Radio Australia, the hollowing out of institutions from volunteer programs to the CSIRO, Bureau of Meteorology. You know, under, under the Abbott and Turnbull governments, we've seen incredible damage to the institutions that are really important for Australia's engagement with its nearest neighbours. And so, surprise, surprise, our neighbours turn to other partners, France, China, Indonesia, India, looking for, for engagement and hoping that those great and powerful friends will have policies more in alignment. You've seen this week the Prime Minister of Samoa coming out and condemning the Australian government for its patronising attitudes. So it's been a known goal from uh, Minister Ferriavanti Wells. Is China the major infrastructure country moving into Pacific? It's not the only one. Um, I'm you know, just wondering the, the relationship between the Chinese workers, because they bring Chinese workers with them, how that's um, being taken by the, the countries where these workers are coming in. China's not the only country investing and, and, and offering aid. India, for example, has been talking a lot in recent years. India has a much smaller relationship with most Pacific countries, except possibly Fiji, where there's a large Indo-Fijian population, the descendants of the Girmiche cane workers. But uh, India is offering a whole lot of support for uh, uh, infrastructure. Japan has had a long engagement with the region on uh, information communications technology, and they've, they've been very involved in Internet support around the region. Uh, other countries are, are funding solar activities and renewable energy and so on. But China's the big player. I mean, as we know, China's a massive economy now and growing. Um, there are all sorts of contradictions internally within China, around energy, around environment, around workers' struggle against the capitalist roaders in China. There's, uh, you know, no clear pathway that China's just going to keep growing and growing and growing. Those old enough to remember Chairman Mao will remember he wrote about contradictions. There are certainly contradictions in China's economic growth, just as every capitalist power has faced. But uh, China's a big player. And China's a big player in Australia, it's a big player in New Zealand. Not surprisingly, it's a big player in the Pacific. The Belt and Road Initiative, which Xi Jinping has promoted, um, which is trying to link basically China towards Europe, 
also extends into Southeast Asia and in a small way in the Pacific. It's important to keep this in perspective that the Pacific is, is uh, relatively small in China's game plan. You know, the big game is in Asia. It's uh, in central uh, the stands, uh, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan and so on, Central Asia. But uh, uh, nonetheless, China is building good links with a number of Pacific countries, not just Fiji, but there. And Pacific governments are not dumb. They've dealt with big and powerful countries before, um, including all the colonial powers, so they know the contradictions of getting into bed with a, a great and powerful friend like China. But there's a need for development assistance. There's a need for infrastructure. And China is now one of the major donors um, in many countries. Historically, it was the ANZUS allies or France. Uh, Japan's been a major player and still is within the region. But countries are wanting to diversify their relationships. The new Pacific diplomacy is showing that Pacific islands are asserting their own collective needs and interests. I'm not just bowing down to what Washington or Canberra or Wellington tells them is good for them, but striking out. And that's having reverberations. The Pacific Small Island Developing States Group has joined the Asia Group within the United Nations, building stronger links with Asian partners rather than just with the ANZUS allies, and it's paying off. Fiji, over the last year, was president of the UN General Assembly, the first time ever a Pacific Island country has been president of the General Assembly. Fiji, in June last year, hosted the Global Oceans Conference, the first of three conferences over the next uh, 15 years, looking at the oceans of the seas, of vital interest for the Pacific, for obvious reasons, uh, in terms of fisheries, marine biodiversity, pollution, uh, climate change and so on. Fiji uh, hosted in November the Conference of the Parties, number 23, for the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Fiji was the host in Bonn of the um, global climate negotiations and will be president, COP president, for the next year until, until uh, October, November next year. So here you've had Fiji, apart from winning a gold medal at the Olympics a couple of years ago, which made them very happy, Fiji saying, well, hang on, we don't need Canberra to hold our hands. We can be president of the General Assembly. We can run global summits. We, we have our own interests on climate change, on decolonisation, on relations with Asia, that we don't need Canberra to tell us what to do. We're happy to have a relationship with Australia, but we don't need Australians trying to tell us how to suck eggs. And so when, for domestic reasons, Concetta Feriavanti-Wells wants to wedge the Labor Party as being pro-Chinese because of Sam Dastyari and so on and the stupid behaviour by the Labor right in terms of sucking up to Chinese businessmen and the big end of town, it has reverberations around the region and lecturing people in the Pacific about how they shouldn't talk to China. People just laugh. So you've got this new assertiveness. It's focused on security. It's not focused on the humanitarian needs. So a lot of Australia's aid policy, and you read the speeches that have come from Julie Bishop and Richard Miles, the Shadow Defence Minister of the Australian Labor Party, who'll be a major player in the next government, a Labor right figure. They're seeing the cornerstone of the relationship between Australia and the Pacific as one of security, one of basically strategic denial to keep Western enemies like China and other players at some distance. But that's not new, is it? That's not new, but it's, it's, there's a new assertiveness about it. The terrorism threat. Australia's always been, been concerned about porousness of Pacific Islands. So, you know, and so the intervention with Ramsey, the regional assistance mission to Solomon Islands, um, going back to 2003, after 9-11, 
the Howard government, who largely ignored the Pacific in the first five years of their government, really swung. And the coups in Fiji in, and uh, Solomon's in 2000, uh, 9-11 and so on, led to Ramsey, a massive decade, more than decade-long intervention that cost $2.8 billion. Most of that money was for policing and law and order programs. 83% of the nearly $3 billion spent in the Solomon Islands with Ramsey was about policing. So it's about security and Australian security and, and protecting the Australian homeland. And so you read the speeches, and they're worth reading. Julie Bishop's speech, Richard Marle's speech recently given, talk about the importance of the Pacific for Australia's security. And that's been reflected in, in Turnbull government policies. Last year, in August, the Australian government uh, signed a, a, a security, bilateral security arrangement with the Solomon Islands. Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavari, who was then Prime Minister, uh, in September, there were also two bilateral security memorandum of understanding signed with small, tiny uh, Pacific countries like Tuvalu and uh, Nauru, both countries of only 10,000 people. And there's one in the pipeline for Kiribati as well, a country of only 100,000 people. So Australia is trying to knit together security relationships with these small island states to stop them going into the Chinese camp essentially. That's also reflected in a major spending on uh, things like the Pacific Patrol Boat Program, Australia, which began back in the Howard years. One generation of boats are starting to get old, and so Australia's pledged under the Pacific Maritime Security Program. Massive investment over the next 30 years, providing over 19 patrol boats to Pacific countries. Very useful for patrolling maritime zones, the vast exclusive economic zones, um, but the the concern is, of course, that China or other countries might give patrol boats, and that happened with Timor, where China provided a patrol boat to the Timorese um, a, a few years ago and caused enormous ructions in Canberra. Hang on, that's our job, not your job. So we're seeing the relationship with the Pacific governed by aid for trade, by focus on private sector investment and interests, and by the security prism. Many Pacific citizens are saying, well, hang on, what about the humanitarian? What about our priorities? What about issues around uh, the adverse effects of climate change? What about our issues around decolonisation and self-determination and human rights? What about women's empowerment and so on? And the balance of our aid program is, is not addressing that. Certainly there are some useful programs. Julia Gillard set up a 10-year program on support for women across the Pacific, $350 million. And to give her a credit, Julie Bishop has kept that program going where she shut down all sorts of other programs like NGO funding for adaptation activities has been really cut back in recent years. The, the backlash that we've seen about Concetta Feriabanti-Wells' comments are not so much about the comments themselves. I mean, I agree that there are certain white elephants in some of the aid projects that have been developed, but the Chinese are not alone in creating dud projects that don't necessarily benefit the people on the ground. And it has to be looked at at this broader context where Australia is aligning itself against China with India, Japan, the United States particularly, and where Australia is, is trying to extend its security relationships across the region at a time that they perceive a loss of influence. But, you know, there's very little self-criticism in Canberra as to why Australia is losing influence in the Pacific. And it's not because very conservative and Christian Pacific Islanders have suddenly become communist and love the red Chinese, it's because Australia's policies are going against the interests of our Pacific neighbours when it comes to things like climate change and decolonisation and nuclear questions and so on. And that's why we're losing influence. 
not because of the evil Chinese, but because Australian governments, successive Australian governments, are advancing policies that are not in the interests of many of our neighbouring citizens. And thanks to researcher and journalist Nick McClellan. And it's 22 minutes past five o'clock, and coming up in a moment, we'll be looking at Iraq. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for 49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Reading from an Australian newspaper from the 11th of December last year. Iraqi PM declares end of terror war. The Prime Minister has declared victory in a three-year war by Iraqi forces to expel the Islamic State jihadist group, which at its height endangered Iraq's existence. Our forces are in complete control of the Iraq-Syrian border and I therefore announce the end of the war with Daesh, he said. Our enemy wanted to kill our civilization, but we have won through our unity and our determination. We have triumphs in little time, he added, hailing Iraq's heroic armed forces. But for the people of Iraq, war is far from over. War against corruption, war against poverty, unemployment, homelessness, environmental destruction. A once prosperous country, much of which destroyed by the US and its allies in their terror wars on the Iraqi people. Kathy Breen, a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, was in Iraq late last year, and I recorded this interview with her just prior to Christmas and asked her first when and where she became involved with Voices. Have known voices uh, and the community that I'm with called the Catholic Worker Community. We've known them and actually housed them and taken part in their previous demonstrations and fasts in front of the U.S. mission to the United Nations, which is just really a couple miles up the street from us in years past. So we knew them very well, and some of us, as I said, tried to participate as we could in their long fast to bring attention to the economic sanctions in Iraq, how they were affecting ordinary people. Who are we? Can you explain that a little bit more? After the first Gulf War, sanctions were imposed on Iraq and they affected the poorest of the people and voices began to go to Iraq with delegations in 1996. I believe over 70 delegations went. This was under the regime. The idea was to look at the effects of the economic sanctions on ordinary people and bring those stories back to the United States. So it was in 2002, actually, when the war, the 2003 U.S.-led war, was drawing closer and closer, it seemed, that 
voices in the wilderness formed something called the Iraq Peace Team. And it was at that time in the fall of 2002 that Kathy Kelly, one of the co-founders of Voices in the Wilderness, asked me if I would consider going to Iraq. The idea being of the Iraq Peace Team that in the event of an invasion, we would try and stay on and walk alongside of ordinary people. The idea being that no one life is more important than another. I went to Iraq first, I think it was in September or October of 2002, and I was able to stay on there for the next month until the U.S. shock and awe campaign. And I was actually in Baghdad with others during the bombing campaign, and it changed my life. The war changed my life. I'm a nurse by profession. Yeah, I'm a retired nurse. In the beginning of the shock and awe campaign, I we were allowed to go to the bombing sites and to the hospitals during the bombing. And at first I didn't, and then I forced myself to do that, and I'll never regret it because we were able to meet the victims, some of them, and, and or the family members of the victims. And I actually carry around with me in a change purse uh, the uh, idea of a cluster bomb that that I visited that hit seven houses in a residential area of Baghdad and killed three boys, all in different areas, you know, who have names. <laughs> and sometimes when I would speak, I would pass that around and say that the, the, our bombs kill. We raise our kids playing war games, and they think war is a game, some of them, and, and it's not. And now we have the, the drone warfare where people press a button thousands of miles away, and people are killed by those bombs. Just staying with the people who went to support the people of Iraq during that shock and awe, there were people from many countries went, weren't there? That's right, Jan. There were, there were Koreans, there were Japanese, there were UK, actually all over. But, yes, uh, voices primarily were people from the United States. But other people joined that. We made the decision as voices in 2004 that we could no longer travel to Iraq. I'm talking not about Kurdistan. I'm talking about central and southern Iraq without putting people in danger, people who would host us or be our drivers or our translators because we were occupying their country. And so for some years we didn't go to Iraq proper but I did spend a lot of time in Damascus and Aleppo and, and Amman, Jordan, with Iraqi refugees over those years. It was only in 2012 that we felt we could venture back into Iraq, to Baghdad and Basra and Najaf and Karbala and Fallujah and Ramadi. But, but many of those places are not now really accessible to us. Just go back to that time in Syria with the refugees from Iraq. Were there many, many people who managed to escape? Yes, Syria had maybe the most. There were statistics given from 1 million to 2 million at certain times in in Syria and in Jordan. They fled because of assassination attempts or death threats with their families, many of them, and, and so I would get to know them and write about them and report on them. I can hardly think about Syria and Damascus and Aleppo because of all the bombings and all the half of their population is displaced or 
either internally or they're refugees. And uh, I actually know Iraqis that fled to Damascus especially. And then when it got so bad in Damascus, they fled back, either back to Iraq or back to Turkey. And I have visited several of those families in Turkey. And then in Turkey, uh, I visited families who fled Mosul, from Mosul to Turkey. Many of the refugees are doubly displaced. Uh, The situation is still so grave in Iraq that many of the people I met on this trip would leave if they could. And not for lack of love for their country, but because they just don't see hope for the future. The unemployment is high. The corruption is rampant. There's no potable water. Uh, The air where I was was so polluted I had to close the window sometimes in the house. It's common to see people with masks uh, over their nose and mouth to protect them from the polluted air. Can I take you back? to that earlier time and the bombing of Baghdad and different places. A lot of the doctors, nurses were killed or had to escape for their lives. It must have been an absolute dire situation for the injured, the psychologically injured, the physically injured people. Yes, yes. You know what, I'll tell you, Jan, as a nurse especially, I have really had to over the last years because shut down in terms of allowing myself to think about the hospitals in Baghdad. I don't know if you heard that we had here in New York City this morning at rush hour an explosion in in the subway near a big or a large bus terminal. And no one was hurt, to my knowledge, but, but the perpetrator was wounded. And it took me back to the time of the Boston Marathon bombing here in the U.S., which was April 15th, 2013. And at that time, there was a marathon, and the headlines of the New York Times, the front page said, War Zone at Mile 26. Now, on that day, tragically, two bombs exploded, and three people were killed. But I want to say this, to put things in perspective. On that same day, 18 bombs went off in Iraq, and 32 people were killed at least. And then a couple days later in Iraq, 111 were killed. A couple days later on the 24th of April, 86 were killed. On April 25th, 96 were killed. So Iraq, even though we don't get the news, has been in a constant state of carnage and warfare and bombings since the 2003-led invasion, U.S.-led invasion. And There was never a suicide bomb in Iraq before that, before the borders were opened and the army and the police were dispensed, dispersed, and al-Qaeda came in. And and we were in Baghdad at that time. I remember seeing everybody coming in, the car plates, you know, the license plates from Kuwait, from Saudi Arabia. Everybody just came in. There was no control. There was no law and order. And you can imagine how tragic it is for Iraqis, all these car bombings and suicide bombings that to this day are taking place and kidnappings and now this civil strife. And yeah, it's today that explosion in New York City in Midtown reminded me of the Boston Marathon bombing and, and uh, all that's happening in Iraq right now. 
from the period 2004 to 2012, were you able to keep contact with some of those people that you'd met earlier? Oh, yes. I, I actually followed families and still do. And we also worked in collaboration with the United UNHCR, United Nations High Commission for Refugees, in those countries, especially where family members were in the United States. We would try to help their cases get relocated with family members. I think we would say as voices that we are we are in favor of people staying in their own region, if possible. That was always with the hope, Jan, that it would be safe enough to go back to Iraq rather than to travel to a foreign, distant land where it's very difficult for them because the culture is so different. I would like to actually tell you a bit about this last trip, if I may. Because I did get to Baghdad. I, I was in Iraq for the month of October. And I did get to Baghdad and was able to speak to some doctors. And I heard stories of their having just received wounded soldiers from clashes with the Peshmerga in Kirkuk. And one young doctor told me that 30 had just died. And he said, it's only damage control. They come severely injured just before dying. And they arrive to be tended to by the hospital staff, but the doctors and nurses are already exhausted. So the patients are expecting compassion and pain relief, and they're told that they have to bring pain medication from the outside because there's so little medications and hospital equipment. And so they, they cry out, of course, that they've served their country and have a right to medical help and compassion. And I ask them, how do you manage emotionally? And one young doctor said to me, at the beginning it was hard. Now I'm just emotionless, he said. But he had this sheepish grin on his face that belied his true feelings. He said, we don't have time to think. We just try and live each day. And one of the hardest things for me to hear on this trip was the painful feeling that one of the doctors said to me that Iraq has been completely forgotten by the global community. And the hurt was just palpable. He said, our curse is to come from a country that has oil. There was the Iranian war, the first Gulf War, the embargo, the 2003 war, al-Qaeda, ISIS, and now Kurdistan. And, and he said, our country was destroyed, and there are no attempts to improve it. And it's more painful now than when we had the sanctions. That's what he told me. Yeah, it was hard to hear, and yet... It was a very, in a way, healing time for me because I went there this time at the invitation to help launch a conversational English class with Iraqis who have studied in English, but they don't have a chance to practice English. And I was just there as a native speaker, and I, like I said, I'm not a teacher, I'm a retired nurse, but I just fell in love with all of the students, and most of them were between 25 and 35 years of age. And there were doctors, lawyers, civil engineers, teachers. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And as they grew in confidence, self-confidence, we were able to talk about not such superficial themes as shop food shopping or introductions, but we could talk about wounded and and feelings and emotions and how they cope or try to cope. And uh, I want to say this, if I might. I, the main teacher 
was a young woman named Maram, just wonderful, self-taught by movies, and her English was as good as mine. She asked one time in a class, going around the room, what is your motto in life? And I'm not really quick on my feet, so to speak. So when they came to me, I passed for a moment to think about this question. But some people answered without any hesitation, and it was just so deeply moving to hear the responses. And I would just like to read a couple of the comments, if I may, because this just was in October. What is your motto in life? One student said, to make every minute count. Another, to care deeply. Another said, to keep learning. And another said, to help people reach their goals. Another, to live in the moment. Someone else said, to be better than I was before. And then someone also shared, or said, to share what you have. And I just, this was very much the atmosphere in the class, these young people. I, and I told them, I urged them from the beginning, you need to learn to speak English so that you can tell us your stories. We need to hear your stories and the stories of your parents and your grandparents. And so in just four weeks, I really watched them grow in self-confidence and courage to speak. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. It's Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with Cathy Breen, a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, who was in Iraq late last year, one of many trips to that country. How many of those students are women? At least half, maybe a little bit more. But it was about 50-50. Are they working in hospitals? No, these are, like I was saying, Jan, the unemployment is very high in Iraq now, and so some of them were couldn't find jobs. And so they were taking this course, this uh, conversational course. This course, when I was in Iraq last, in the beginning of this year, I went, uh, I went in late December last year and early January I had a trip, and this friend Sammy, an Iraqi friend that we've known for years, he had this idea to start a conversational English class. And I was so excited because I thought, yes, we need to widen the circle and get young people involved who could maybe go for a month and speak English and form human friendships and just open the circle, widen the circle. And what happened was some of the people who were going to go, it fell through. And so I was asked to go for the month of October. This was a very unusual type of trip for me because I usually go to fact-finding and whatnot. But it was, like I said, very, very healing for me, and I actually did get to dive that on a couple of occasions and was able to visit with people there that we know. But it's sad. It's very sad that they want to leave the country because they just don't see hope there. It's so corrupt that you can buy your university degree, or if you have a contact with a certain political party, you can get a job. There's really so little hope for change that change is possible. Yeah, it's a rather desperate situation, and that's why the generosity and concern and care of these young people just moved me tremendously. How many cities, towns were you able to visit this time? Oh, I was just actually in two places. I was in Najaf, 
and I was invited. Students all came from Najaf, which is a, I want to say there's maybe under a million. I'm going to say, I'm off the top of my head, maybe 750,000. I hope I'm, that, that's not incorrect. It's southwest of Baghdad. It's about two and a half hours, maybe by car. They have very holy shrines of their uh, imam martyrs there, and they get millions of pilgrims, both in Najaf and Karbala, which is a sister city, and those are Shia areas. And while I was there, they were in the middle of a 40-day commemoration, and the pilgrims were starting to come. And it was just beautiful to see because they come on foot, many of them, walking great distances, and they everybody opens their homes and they have places for these pilgrims and they cook for them and there's big vats on the side of the street and everything is free, nothing is charged and there's tents set up for wound care for feed or whatever um, it's just a very special time and it always reminds me of this hospitality that is part and parcel of people from the Middle East I think that's been all of our experience, they can't not but be welcoming just in recent days here we've been told by the Prime Minister or President of Iraq that ISIS has been defeated. Is ISIS the problem? Oh, I, I think anybody in Iraq would tell you that even if ISIS is not there, the, the problems will continue. They're, they're so, the country is so riddled, like I said, with corruption and with, I think, uh, bad feelings between the you know, between the different sects. I, I want to read something, if I may. I'm, I want to quote. I don't know if you remember the shoe thrower. Yes. When the, when the students got better in their conversation skills, we were able to touch on topics, as I said, which were, were deeper. And one of them was, one day, emotions and feelings. What makes us sad? What gives us joy? What makes us angry? What causes us shame? And... So this was the theme of the class, and my own thoughts went to anger, and one being righteous anger, and and so I was thinking of this journalist, an Iraqi journalist, who on December 14, 2008, threw his shoes at George W. Bush at a press conference in Baghdad. And the question that I was asking was, did he have a right to be angry? And the name of the journalist was Mutadr al-Sadi, and he, in an interview about nine months after the incident, he said, what compelled me to act is the injustice that befell my people and how the occupation wanted to humiliate my homeland by putting it under its boot. And then he went on to say how many martyrs have fallen by bullets of the occupation more than five million orphans and a million widows and hundreds of thousands of maimed. And he said, we used to be a nation in which the Arab would share with the Turkmen and the Kurd and the Assyrian and the Sabian and the Yazidi his daily bread. And the Shia would pray with the Sunni in one line, and the Muslim would celebrate with the Christian the birthday of Christ. But the invasion divided us, brother from brother, neighbor from neighbor, and it turned our homes into funeral tents. And he said, I'm not a hero, but I have a point of view. I have a stance, and it humiliated me to see my country humiliated, 
to see my dad get burned, my people killed. And he was a journalist that unearthed a lot of these terrible massacres, the scandal of Abu Ghraib, the massacre of Fallujah, Najaf. And he went all through, he traveled through the land and saw with his own eyes the pain of the victims. When I read that, I, I wrote about that and quoted that because here we are, that was in 2008, and here we are years later, 2017, and the problems continue. And I continue to get news from uh, refugees, and some have resettled in the States, some have resettled in Canada, some have been denied asylum in, in Europe, some have gone back to Baghdad. Some of them, one very close family, their two sons were kidnapped at the end of May and are still being held. And I heard many stories on this trip of kidnappings, and none of them turned out favorably. And so there's just a lot of tragedy and suffering that we don't hear about. What has to be done? What needs to be done? And what is being done? I can only speak as someone from the United States, and it's with Every time I go to Iraq, it's with the heavier shame, burden of shame. Uh, it used to be that shame worked a little bit in this country, you know. I think in 2005 or six, it came out that we'd only taken 400 and some refugees from Iraq. And that shame seemed to help a little bit to get us to open up our immigration policy with Iraq. I think it, it's deeply embarrassing to us as a country that we were supposed to take democracy to Iraq. And so I don't think the administration ever wanted this known that in, instead of democracy, we've just destroyed the country. Like I quoted from that doctor that I just saw, our greatest curse was that we had oil. That's our greatest curse as a country. And our country's been destroyed, and everyone has completely forgotten about it. It's a good question. I What can I say right now in the face of, of our Muslim ban here in this country and what's happening under this administration? We need to be shaken up. We need to be wakened up from our indifference and our slumber. I, I mean, much of the damage has already been done, Jan, but in terms of our my own country's policies we we just have we just have to keep trying to sound the alarm you know i'm not a good inter, i'm not a good interview candidate like i said i'm not quick on my feet but i do believe strongly that the word has to go out about what people are experiencing and these are people who never wanted war do you see similarities with what the us tried to do in syria to what they did to iraq Syria is linked, intricately linked with Iraq and what happened in Iraq and the chaos and confusion and this destruction that we have caused there. I mean, especially from the United States and just our meddling in, in all and weapons selling. You know, our weapons selling, it's, it's our biggest industry is weapons and we have to have a war. This war on terror is a purposeful war that we initiated. Let's make no mistake about that. We have the war on drugs here, but then we have the war on terror after 9-11, and we created that war. We sell weapons. That's our biggest industry. And who talks about that? What politicians are speaking about that? 
problems are very deep-seated and complex because I would hate to guess how what percentage of the U.S. population are somehow involved in in the production of weapons and bombers, and it's it's frightening. I, how much of our budget goes to war? I, I think our military. Well, I don't know. I, I shouldn't quote figures, but it's just exorbitant. Our military budget. I'm wondering how many veterans, U.S. veterans from that war in Iraq, are back home speaking out. We have contact, very good contact with vets, especially vets for peace, and and also just a shocking, a shocking statistic, Jan, is that more vets have committed suicide than the number of uh, soldiers who were killed in Iraq and Afghanistan. More have committed suicide than, than those who died in those conflicts. You know, we have that to contend with, too, but there are vets who... I think the veterans for peace have one of the most powerful voices here in this country, but they're really not given much voice in the mainstream media, as you probably know. You'll go back? I hope so. Oh, yes, uh, I hope so. I I always get more cheerful <laughs> when I know I'm going to have another trip. I know that sounds crazy. But I I really wish so much that younger people would have the same opportunity that I have had over years. And whenever I go, I say to people, I'm just one person. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of people who would want to come with me on this trip, but they can't. But they understand and want you to know that they feel something of what you're suffering and grieving because of our war of choice. And, I wa- and you know, often, Jan, I'm the first person that Iraqis can speak to first person from the United States who's not a soldier. And so I have this privilege in a way of letting them speak. I believe they need to say to someone from the United States what they're experiencing. And I have been in um, gatherings where everybody wanted to speak at once. And for instance, one person said to me just a couple years ago, is anyone speaking about depleted uranium in the United States? Does anybody know about our deformed babies? And, you know, to my deep shame, I had to say, you know, in the beginning, yes. In the beginning, like uh, 2003, 2004, when our own soldiers were coming back and being tested, having urine testing for depleted uranium, yes, there was attention given to that. But tragically, very little, you rarely read now uh, about investigation studies done for depleted uranium. So we have contaminated the country, and then we, we just walk away. Uh, that, that is a political decisions. Just finally, Kathy, tell me a story about one young person, one maybe one child, who has so inspired you. Oh, dear. I, the one that comes to mind is, is it's almost, I don't know, I was telling you about this family who had sons kidnapped and they're still being held. And you can, I just can't even imagine their grief and pain at not knowing the outcome of their sons or if they're where they are or if they're being tortured. But they also have little children in the family. And I was talking just very recently to the dad, and I got to see this family when I went to Baghdad. Um, and he was—I thought he was having a heart attack—and 
he couldn't get to the doctors that night because it was too dangerous to go outside. There was a lot of shooting in the area. Anyway, I said, tell me some stories about the children. And so he said, well, when I came home from work today, my six-year-old said, well, Mom tortured me today. And I and he said, what happened? And she said, oh, she was trying to strangle me. And he said, why? What did you do? And he said, I didn't do my homework. And he said, okay, so let Mom make dinner for us, and then we'll take revenge on her. And so the little four-year-old heard this and went to his mother. Now, this was all a joke, actually. You know what I mean? four-year-old went to his mom and said, Mom, i got to hide you because this is what they plan to do. And so then they worked out a ransom. I mean, we laughed, we laughed and laughed and laughed. And by the time we got off the phone, there was just a whole other atmosphere. But maybe it is a good story to sort of demonstrate what these children are raised in. Uh, they only have known war. It's part of the vocabulary. But, but there's this genuine ability to laugh together, to laugh, and and it keeps them sane, the children, because because the situation is just so uncertain and dangerous that I found it was an incredible story, and we got through the night just fine. But we did a lot of laughing on the phone, and I think that's the only thing that keeps them sane. They struggle a lot with depression and what will happen. I'm sorry to give you this bad news, but it comes from people that um, I think could teach us what peace is. I've always felt that, that uh, Iraqi people and Syrian people and all through the Middle East can teach us what peace is. Peace be with you is how we greet one another there, and with you too. Thank you so much, Kathy, and thank you for your work with the people. You're very welcome. Thanks for letting me speak. And that was Kathy Breen, a member of Voices for Creative Nonviolence in the US, talking about her latest trip to Iraq and also previous times when she's been there. That's all for me for today. It's been great to be back. I look forward to being on the program again next week at 4 o'clock. So I'll leave you with a song from the Warumpi Band and um, I'll be back four o'clock next week so it's bye for now